Welcome back to First Down South, everybody. We made it through another week of college football, and I am here to break down everything we saw in the SEC and everything we're going to see in the week to come with two of the best reporters covering the SEC today. That would be John Talty on my right there and Matt Zenitz on the bottom of your screen. Fellas, we had sort of a... Sort of a rivalry week this week in the SEC. It's it's not quite the same, obviously, but some of the league's sort of premier <clears throat> in-conference rivalries were played this week, um, with the Iron Bowl and the Egg Bowl in particular. And even though it's not the end of the season, like it would normally be after this week, uh, I do feel like we learned a lot, and I feel like there were some things that that solidified and were resolved by some of the games that we saw. And, and in particular, I think the, the most of the, the nation was focused on the Iron Bowl. You're always going to be paying closer attention when the number one team is playing in a rivalry game. And this one really never felt competitive. Uh, I, I, think that's, I think that is uh, probably boring for the average viewer. I'm sure that most Alabama fans were happy that it was boring. Um, but, you know, what do you what what did what was sort of your biggest takeaway for the two of you uh, after watching Alabama's sort of demolition of Auburn in this game? And we'll start with you, John. Don't call Mac a game manager. That's what I learned. <laughs> you know, I think that was one of the big storylines, and you know, I think uh, Bo Nix learned his lesson on that one. I mean, I think some of the big takeaways are a Mac Jones he deserves to be a Heisman. You know, candidate, a serious candidate. He's already been in the mix, but I think he should be one of the top two or three. I think you can make an argument that Devonta Smith should be considered a Heisman candidate too. Uh, has had a great year in general, but I think just since Jalen Waddell's gone down, Smith has really stepped it up and emerged as you know one of one of if not the nation's top you know wide receivers. And then I think just looking at the performance Steve Sarkeesian had, this is a guy who, you know, had an opportunity last year uh, to, you know, not get the Mississippi State job. He was one of the top two or three candidates for it, uh, decided to come back to Alabama. And I think just showed, you know, with the offensive call and just managing the game in general, uh, why so many schools, whether it's this year or in the future, are going to be interested in possibly giving Sark another shot as a head coach. Yeah, and I, and I want to talk about that part of this specifically, Matt, because that was sort of the undercurrent of the game was, you know, Nick Saban wasn't there. He was watching the game from home. He was not able to coach on game day. But you never really would have known from watching Alabama play. I, I'm curious, Matt, how you feel like that part of this, what, what is the takeaway from that part of this equation? Are, are, are we – are, are we are we supposed to come away from this saying maybe Alabama doesn't need Nick Saban anymore? Or are we supposed to come away from this saying Alabama's program is so strong that maybe they can withstand a transition going forward? I, I think the bigger part of that is just that the Sark stock was already at a really good point going into this season, and he's continued to build on that throughout the course of the year, including with that game. So even without Nick Saban, on the sideline for an Iron Bowl for the, the first time since 2006, Alabama comes away with one of the more lopsided wins in an Iron Bowl in recent history, winning by by 29 points. But some of the, the big takeaways for me are the, along the same lines as what John talked about. So obviously it was impressive with, with Sark, the way he was able to step in and 
get Alabama through that game pretty pretty seamlessly without Nick Saban being in there, whereas with most teams, that would probably be more of an issue in terms of getting through the game. I, I think Devontae Smith, uh, along the lines of what John was talking about, is probably more de- deserving at this point of being included in the, the Heisman conversation than what it seems like he is right now. You, you could make a, a very good argument that he's arguably the most valuable player on Alabama's team right now. And the, the way that he has stepped up, obviously he was important and productive even before Jalen Waddle got hurt, but has taken his game to an even greater level since Jalen Jalen Waddle went down. And actually, at this point, if Alabama ends up playing 13 games, which obviously looks like there's a good chance of that happening at this point based on, on how they look, that Devontae Smith is currently on pace to post some ridiculous numbers. So as it stands right now, it's on pace to, to finish if they play 13 games with something along the lines of 117 catches, more than 1,700 yards and 20 touchdowns, which is just ridiculous in terms of total numbers and j- just has been – a, a tremendous player for Alabama to the point that not only is he arguably the top receiver in the country, but you can make a, a great point that he, he's been one of the, the top overall players in, in the country to go along with that. And then the last thing I'll throw out there, the, the defense, which has gotten overshadowed uh, for Alabama just based on what the, this offense continues to do, okay, continues to, to play really well. So obviously had a tough start to the year specifically with the, the combination of that game against Ole Miss in the first half against Georgia, where they allowed during a six-quarter span 72 points. But since then, in the in the 18 quarters and four-and-a-half games since then, ha- have only allowed 33 points total. And, and obviously against Auburn, it was on the verge of holding them without a touchdown until a late meaningless touchdown from Bo Nix. So it, it makes Alabama even more dangerous moving forward, just the way that the defense has improved throughout the course of the year. I do want to go back to Sark and his stock right now because obviously this was <laughs> we, we still don't know if this game is actually going to go down in the record books as a head coaching win for Steve Sarkeesian. It seems like it's a little yeah, bit complicated. Yeah. Based on the fact that the Georgia game, if he had missed it, Coach Saban would have gotten either the win or a loss for that game. So right. I would it would be the same kind of situation with this one. But that said, you know, look, this was a situation where it was a pretty big game. Um, Sark was was the guy out there running the sideline for Alabama. It was a very successful offensive game for Alabama. And really, for the last couple of seasons, Sark's offensive play calling has made him one of the most uh, desired coaches in the country. John, you're you're pretty tapped in on the on the coaching side of things and in the coaching market. When we talk about how hot of a candidate Sark is right now, I think some of that does depend on the jobs that are available right now, right? So, sure. what, what's the what's the landscape looking like to you right now? And if you're and if you're Steve Sarkeesian, what are there? Is there a job or two that maybe you're waiting to see come open before you start to have serious conversations about it? I don't know if there's a job or two you're waiting to come open, but I think you're certainly waiting to see what other jobs do come open. Because I think right now, if you look at what's generally open, you've got you know South Carolina and Vanderbilt in the SEC. You've got Southern Miss. There's really no, I think, elite level job. You know, sorry, Laura Goldman, if you're you're listening to this, you know, South Carolina is <laughs> not an elite job, and so you know, I don't think Sark has been that interested in that job from what I've heard. So, you know, I think for him, he has put himself in a situation where you know, he's already been a head coach at a major level. Um, so, I think there's a known quantity there. Everyone knows about his you know well documented uh, personal issues. 
which you know any school is going to want to do their due diligence on to make sure that you know he's fully passed or as best as he can be past those issues. But you know I think that he's in line for a Power Five job. It's just waiting to see which ones are going to come open. I think everyone's kind of curious as to you know whether you have a Texas or a Michigan or something like that opens up. Uh, Sark probably wouldn't get in the mix for those jobs, but that could then kind of create a domino effect in which maybe some other good jobs do open up. So I don't think Sark leaves this year uh, in part just because I don't think there's a great job that's going to open up. But, you know, if one of those big jobs open up either through a firing or, you know, if a, a Matt Campbell, Lincoln Riley type goes to the NFL, you know, maybe that creates some other jobs opening up that Sark would be interested in. But I think he certainly has set himself up to, to, to be a major candidate for, you know, a better job once uh, once one opens up. Well, I'm sure Alabama fans will be happy to hear that that you don't think Sark is necessarily leaving this year. That'd be a good situation for them. But also, it, it's really not a bad situation that he's in right now. Uh, you know, he's he's getting paid a ton of money by Alabama with that new contract. He's he's getting to coach a group of talent that makes him, frankly, look really good. And I'm sure he is doing a great job. But easy to look pretty good with the kind of talent that he's coaching out there right now on offense. And on top of it, none of, none of the head coaching pressure that, that comes along with that. So not a bad situation to be in. I, I, am, I am curious though, again, this was like our first sort of taste of maybe what it could feel like to watch Alabama football without Nick Saban. It didn't last very long because he was, he was on TV with CBS as soon as the game ended talking about, I mean, essentially functioning as the head coach doing the post-game uh, media hit. But that said, we saw the team come out onto the field with a different coach that wasn't Nick Saban. It was, it, it, it was a taste of what post-Saban life could be like at Alabama. And Matt, I'm, I'm curious how much you think somebody like Sark or, or, or perhaps a different assistant under Saban uh, could be looked at as the next guy once that day finally comes that Nick Saban decides to retire. Sark is one of the, the natural people to look at right now, and that's something that's been brought up uh, by multiple people in the coaching world, including some with connections to Alabama. And obviously, we, we speculated for so long about who, who the heir apparent could be whenever Nick Saban ultimately decides to move on, Wait, whenever that, that is. And one of the guys that the people in the coaching world are definitely talking about right now is somebody that would make sense as an option is Sark, based on the work that he's continued to do during the course of this now two-year run at Alabama as offense coordinator. But just to, to piggyback on what John was talking about in terms of jobs for him and the market and all of that, the, the feeling among people in the coaching world is that he is in position where he can be very selective, be very picky. He's making $2.5 million a, a year, and the sense is that it would take something significant for him to even consider leaving his current position to – to go for. So some of the, the jobs that could potentially come open, like a Michigan, I do think that that, that that would be interesting. I don't know where he would rank on their list of candidates, but it would take a job like that, I think, for it to even be a consideration based on the sense that I have at this point. And, and I would agree with John that is probably looking more likely than not at this point that he would be back at Alabama as offensive coordinator compared to him leaving and taking a head coaching job just based on what's available right now and based on what it looks like could come open. 
Is the is the head coach in waiting concept totally dead? Is that experiment over? Do you do we not think programs I mean, it ever works? It's, it never has. <laughs> I, 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 mean, I can think of Maryland had James Franklin as their head coach in waiting. He left before that happened. Texas had Will Muschamp as their head coach in waiting. He left for Florida before that happened. Uh, I can't really think of many times where there's been like a successful. So, Passing of the baton. So was Jimbo? Wasn't Jimbo technically head coach and waiting at Florida State? I think he was, and that was as everyone remembers. You know, got kind of ugly with Bobby Bowden got yeah. pushed out. So I think Jimbo was sick of waiting. So I mean, it almost never works. And here's the interesting thing. And you know, I I know that Matt has good sources, so I don't doubt what people are saying about Sark. But I mean, Scusi, you might be able to better answer this one. Like in terms of Alabama fans, I just have. The feeling that I get is that they would want Sark to go out and be a head coach again and then come back rather than sliding over from an assistant position just because of how great that job is that they think they should be able to get anybody. That It's just hard for me to imagine an assistant sliding over first, like sending Sark back out into the world and then him having success and then them bringing him back home. Yeah, I, I look, I, I definitely think that Alabama fans are going to have extremely high expectations once that moment comes. But I think, I think the people who are involved in making the decision are going to heavily consider the concept that, look, what Saban has going, he's a, he's a great coach. He's a, he is a man who brought many ideas to the table and makes many great choices on his own. But he also created a process. He created a system that almost ensures that it's going to have repeated success if the system is followed. So I, I could see there being really strong temptation to say, whatever we do, it, it would behoove us to try to keep the same infrastructure in place if it's possible, rather than, le- rather than saying, let's bring in a new guy, throw everything out, let the new guy do it however he wants to do it. I feel like it would be very tempting to in- instead hire somebody who makes the pitch by saying, look. I worked for Coach Saban for a really long time. I know how he likes to do things. And my plan is, let's just keep that going. Uh, I I think there would be a lot of appeal uh, to Alabama to hear a pitch like that. And I I think so. so, somebody who has worked under him for a substantial amount of time could bring that to the table, whether it's Sark, whether it's maybe Lane. Uh, I I would say Jeremy Pruitt has really only hurt his, his, his contention for that position by going off to become a head coach somewhere because frankly, he stepped into a job where it probably was going to be really tough for him to succeed. So that's the the downside of going off and taking a head coaching job somewhere else is, you know, it might not go that well. <laughs> you might hurt your candidacy. Hey, that in about Shark also is it's not like they're making this decision right now. It's not like Nick sure. is expected to retire coming out of this year. So if it does work out where Sark is at Alabama moving forward as the offensive coordinator, you you would think that he would put himself in position where we would continue to improve his standing for uh, that that kind of opportunity just based on what it looks like this offense could accomplish moving forward. So even if you lose Mac Jones coming out of this year to go along with guys like Najee, Najee Harris and Devontae Smith and all of them, you have a very, very talented young quarterback to go along with some other talented young pieces offensively that you would assume that they will continue to be very successful from an offensive standpoint. To go along with that, he is highly, highly thought of behind the scenes there, not only from a peer standpoint, but even in terms of administration. And 
that that obviously will factor into things whenever it does come time for them to make a decision as far as the successor. The big question with that, just wait, when's that actually going to be a position that they get put in? Um, and once again, we're not expecting that at any point necessarily in the, the near future. No. And in fact, um, to, to reference something that one of our uh, colleagues in the industry wrote about this week, Chris Lowe from ESPN seemed to be suggesting that if anything, Nick Saban watching this game on TV sort of gave him uh, an even stronger feeling that he doesn't want to retire anytime soon. So, so I, you know, look, things, things can change quickly, but it, it doesn't seem like Nick Saban has, is, is attempting to wrap his career up at the moment. And I mean, I will say, I mean, no one uh, in our industry has a closer relationship with Nick Saban than Chris Love. So I would say that that's an informed opinion on his behalf. I think it's one of those things that, you know, I think Zenit's kind of hit on this earlier that it's just something that we're always going to talk about. It's a fun topic to talk about, but I don't think it's, it's impossible to know right now when he's going to leave. And it's impossible to know who the top candidates are going to be because we don't know when he's going to leave. You know, if he leaves in a year, you know, our, I think we could figure out who the top candidates are. If he leaves in eight, nine years, like Chris was suggesting, I mean, who knows who's even going to be coaching at that point, you know? And so that's what makes, I think, part of this uh, topic always challenging. It's just so much can change between now and then. But, you know, I, I think I would probably split the difference if I was guessing maybe four or five more years. But, I mean, he's, he's still healthy. Uh, and I think Nick is, as long as Nick knows he can coach at a high level, he's going to want to keep doing it. I think if he gets to a point where he doesn't think he can impact the way he used to, that's when he's going to walk away. Well, obviously everything is is – relatively riding high for Alabama right now. There's an, uh, there's a, uh, an opposite side to the Iron Bowl, obviously, and that is uh, the Auburn Tigers, who came away with a, a really tough-to-swallow loss. You never want to lose your big rivalry game, but I think this was a particularly tough one for Auburn, just given the, the sort of dominating nature of it. They, they really never felt like they were in this game, and, and I think that's the bigger disappointing part for Auburn fans rather than than just look you're gonna you're not gonna beat Alabama every year and I think most realistic Auburn fans know that but I think I think there was I I've out there on the internet saw a lot of frustration with some of the play calling decisions in this game in particular Gus opting to kick three field goals in this game including one really long field goal that was ultimately missed at a point in the game where they were three touchdowns behind, it seemed, you know, look, coaches coaches have their sort of guidebooks that they follow of when you do what in different situations. But there was a perception, I think, among some fans that the 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 effort wasn't there, the the desire wasn't there. They they didn't seem to be, um, they didn't seem to have their heart in this one. Um, how, how much of that, how much of that is just fans being fans? And I think how much of that is this Auburn team is not in a good place emotionally, mentally right now. I mean, I guess what I would say is something that I think I've said on here in the past is that, you know, I think with how the fan base views Gus, he's just never going to get the benefit of the doubt. And so, you know, there's, I think, I think I've said this on here too. Saban is the exact opposite. Saban can basically do no wrong with the Alabama fan base. You know, Saban can try to convince you that the sky is green and you'd always have people defending that take. Gus, you know, 
Anytime he makes a mistake or what is perceived as a mistake, the fan base is going to jump on him. And so I think there are real questions about where this Auburn program is headed. You know, if you look back a year ago, Auburn wins the Iron Bowl, has some momentum, knocks Alabama out of the playoff race. You got a young quarterback in Bo Nix, felt like, all right, you know, he maybe is peaking a little bit, a lot of excitement kind of heading into bowl season. Uh, I think that excitement is gone right now. You know, I think that it's a, it's a weird year. So I think you can kind of give some excuses to everybody because of that. But certainly, I think we haven't seen the development around Bo Nix that you would have hoped for. Uh, I don't think Chad Morris is the most popular hire right now in Auburn. And so I think that. Some of the fan complaints I saw are a bit overstated, but I do think there's, you know, concern to some extent around where the program is headed. And again, to, to wrap it up, I think that, you know, Gus is just not a beloved character. And so whenever things start to go wrong, you will start to see people trying to, you know, bring up the negatives and try to force them out. Matt, I, I want to talk about a couple of sort of personnel related aspects to Auburn's loss to Alabama in this game. Obviously, they were missing some key players um, and had some guys banged up on the offensive line. And it seems like that's been kind of a recurring issue for Gus, especially in recent years. You're a guy for us that, that you know, follows player development, knows a lot about recruiting. It's, 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 Interesting to me and, and difficult that a coach that is, again, a, an offensive guru, one, and, and two, who's, you know, traditionally the, the offense that he wrote the book on literally is very predicated on having a strong running game. But Gus doesn't seem to have had the kind of consistent success on the offensive line that you would expect somebody with that style of offense to have. We're, we're, I'm, I'm curious on your perspective on that side of it, the offensive line personnel issues at Auburn. Well, they obviously lost some key players from last year's offensive line, but the bigger problem for, for Gus and Chad Morris this year has been the, the lack of progression, the lack of development from Bo Nix. So when you've looked at Bo against better teams, or specifically the three games that, that they've lost, in those three games, Bo has all of one total touchdown pass to go along with six interceptions. And obviously against Alabama, didn't throw any touchdowns, had a couple interceptions, just didn't look great during the course of that game. And considering the, the reputation in terms of from an offensive mind standpoint that uh, Gus, Chad Morris have and, and the optimism that they shared leading up to the season, just expected more in terms of development and play from Bo Nick specifically than what we've seen throughout the, the course of the year. In, in terms of Gus, specifically in his standing at Auburn, that there would there definitely started to be chatter with some of those behind the scenes power players after they started two and two and after they lost to a South Carolina team that's turned out to be bad enough that ended up firing their their head coach and uh, the worst team in the conference right now, probably uh, aside from Vanderbilt. And like we've talked about on the this show before, this is an Auburn team that while they're five and three at this point could easily be three and five, if not for some, some pretty bad officiating blunders. And that does not get forgotten, regardless of what the record is on paper at this point, with, with some of those people behind the scenes, especially when you combine it with the fact that, that the guy that you're leaning on most from a player standpoint to, to lead you to better things moving forward and Bo Nix just hasn't taken the, the kind of step forward that I'm sure they were hoping for this year. So that talk with Gus had died down some as they went on a little winning streak after after starting two and two. But 
they, they end this year, obviously coming off of a loss to Alabama that dropped them to, to five and three with, with a game against Texas A&M that obviously they're, they're an underdog going into. And then like we've talked about behind the scenes and the year with a game against Mississippi State that all of a sudden looks like, I'm not going to say that, that Auburn isn't going to be favored in that game, but it looks like a potentially losable game just based on how Mississippi State has played these last couple of weeks, including how they've come along offensively to the point that their freshman quarterback threw for like 440 or whatever in this last game against Ole Miss. Well, certainly Ole Miss's offense has, our defense has made a lot of quarterbacks look pretty good, but yes. But he also threw for like 330 against Georgia. He did, yeah. I mean, overall, they've taken a, a noticeable step forward. And in each of the, these last two games, even though they've lost, those two games have both been decided by only seven points, including against a top 10 team in Georgia. And they had a shot to win both games pretty late in, into the game. So not a, not a particularly comforting scenario ahead. John, I, you know, I keep commenting about how weird it is that the Iron Bowl has happened, and yet there's still kind of a decent chunk of season left. We're not, we're not sort of directly – the teams that have had disappointing years don't get to just slump off after losing their rivalry game and, and re- recover themselves a little bit before a bowl game. You've got to go back out there and keep yourself together or things could, could really end on a sour note for the program. You know, I, I, think, I think in the case of Alabama right now, it, it's ended up looking like their last two opponents are probably two of the easier ones on their entire schedule for the season. But for Auburn, that might not be the case. They now have to go play a top five Texas A&M team uh, who, granted, didn't, didn't look spectacular last weekend. But they're, again, they're a top five team for a reason. Uh, they've only lost to Alabama, and um, I, I, I'm curious how you feel. Gus's, you know, we, we've we've done this game with Gus over and over again. He he gets to the precipice of making everybody mad enough to fire him, and then he wins a big one that people maybe aren't expecting him to win. Talk to me about kind of the two ways that the the rest of this season could go for Auburn, and and genuinely, what is the range of of end game scenarios that Gus could have at this season. I mean, I think the general assumption and feeling is that Gus will be back next year. Um, I think that's, you know, that's, I think if you look at the most likely outcome, that's the most likely outcome. I think if they beat Texas A&M this weekend, that, that pretty much guarantees that's the outcome. I think if they, you know, lose to Texas A&M and beat Mississippi state, which is probably the most likely of all the outcomes, then I think, you know, again, Gus comes back next year. Now, if Auburn gets blown out against Texas A&M and then loses to Mississippi state to end the year, you know, having lost to got blown out by Alabama, you get blown out by Texas A&M and then you lose to Mississippi state. I think that's when it gets interesting. Cause I think that's when you're going to see some boosters get very antsy and really question, you know, the, the future of the program. Now, I think at Auburn, you know, one of the things to consider is that, you know, AD Alan Green seems to be, you know, someone who's, you know, pretty, pretty reliable, you know, pretty consistent, isn't, you know, kind of prone to massive swings one way or another. Uh, but you'd have to wonder whether, you know, some of the important money people at Auburn really kind of push his hands a little bit to make a move. So again, I think, your most likely scenario is that Gus is back next year. Uh, maybe make some some staff changes. He's done that in the past. Uh, but again, I think if they lose out and it looks ugly, that's when it gets a little interesting. Yeah, and we, I feel like I should mention too, 
you know, one weird aspect that we haven't really talked very much about is the, the fact that the end of this season is sort of lining up very, very closely with early signing day, which is now the new normal. This is now like basically the main signing day in college football. This is when you have to have your guys locked in basically by mid-early December. And, you know, I think I've seen some people cite that as the reason why South Carolina and Vanderbilt went ahead and pulled the trigger on firing their head coaches early in the season. Some of it's to get out ahead in the in the coaching sweepstakes, but some of it is because you you don't want your recruiting uh, to get away from you. And right now, Auburn's in a little bit of a dangerous spot. I'm looking at the 24 uh, seven rankings right now for recruiting. Auburn is currently after a, a string of some fairly high-profile decommitments, um, including the, the, the best running back in the state of Alabama, they're now 39th nationally, which, look, we know they're going to they're gonna finish stronger than that. But it's not a good spot to be in this close to signing day. Um, closing out a season looking like the program is on a decline could really tank your recruiting momentum. And I think more than anything else, and look, boosters are not always rational thinkers. They don't always act based on strategy. But I think if I was somebody who felt an investment in the college football program personally as a booster, and that's how boosters think most of the time, they feel like they're personally invested in the program. And I see not only are we having a rough season, but the recruiting is taking a dive. That to me is the most disturbing part about the future of the program and, and what would potentially push me to want to make a change. Yeah, it hasn't been a, a good last week for Gus. So you combine the, the Alabama loss with potentially a loss to Alabama in recruiting. So Armani Goodwin decommits. And for, from what I've heard for, from people in the coaching world, it seems like Alabama is one of the main schools to keep an eye on for him. So it makes it worse from an Auburn standpoint that not only do you lose the, the top-ranked players within your recruiting class, but potentially end up losing him to, to your top rival. So I'll tell you this, Matt. Uh, I got this text from an Auburn friend, um, and I'll read it here quick. Uh, said that, you know, Mentioned the Sharif Cooper in the last week. Sharif Cooper news: postseason ban, smoked by Alabama, smoked by Gonzaga, bad performance against Central Florida, lost our running back commit, lost uh, offensive tackle to Notre Dame. They feel like Gus is probably here to stay, and now the recruiting class is 39th and plummeting. So Auburn fans, I think, are already kind of uh, upset about how the last couple of weeks. Man. Big, uh, big, our pets' heads are falling off. Energy from that text, very much so. Uh, and it was what a week, baby, is how he, he closed it. Yeah. But it's, uh, I think they're certainly aware of how things are not going great right now for Auburn athletics. And so I think that that energy is going to keep building if they keep losing. You know, the basketball season, unfortunately for Gus, the basketball season doesn't provide a distraction the way it has in the last couple of years. You know, and so. There's going to be a lot of energy focused on the end of this Auburn season, especially because it is coming right up on the signing day. And so, you know, again, you lose those last two games and you don't have a good day to start really signing day. You have some boosters who are very upset. Yeah, and, and there's very few of those things on that long list that you mentioned that can actually be fixed or acted upon in any way. 
Uh, but you can you you can fix who the head football coach is if you if you feel like I got to do something. I got I got all this money burning a hole in my bank account, and I want to do something with it to make Auburn sports better. That's one of the only things you can do uh, is make a coaching change. So I don't know. We'll we'll see how things wrap up for Gus as we go through the final stretch of the football season here. Um, but guys, there are programs that are having a worse time in the SEC than Auburn right now, arguably. And uh, one of them is LSU. They're getting ready to finally play Alabama after that game was delayed a few weeks ago. And uh, it, it's not coming at a good time. It's certainly not putting LSU in a better position to be competitive in this game than they would have been a few weeks ago. Uh, on top of everything else that has happened to them this season, they're now down to, I guess, who we would say is the third string quarterback um, that they that they had on the field by the end of the Texas A&M game. I don't know if they're going to go back to Finley for this game. It's on. It, it's unclear to me what their quarterback situation is. But Ed Orgeron's obviously very frustrated with their quarterback situation. And on top of it, Terrace Marshall, uh, their leading receiver for the season, has opted out for the remainder of the year. So you lose one of your uh, your best offensive weapons from an offense that has not had many weapons and hasn't had much good going for it this year. I, I bring this up in part, not because I want to talk about the Alabama-LSU game. I expect that to be a remarkably boring game. Alabama is almost a 30-point favorite at this point uh, heading into the weekend. But for LSU, we're now seeing, you know, they're probably the prime example in the country of lots of players opting out this season, um, but it started to, to cascade as the year goes on, and I think we've seen that. You guys mentioned Mississippi State's had that issue as well, and other programs around the country. It seems like once they reach a point where it's clear that they're not going to play for anything significant this season, where it's clear that their program is not going to have a good season, guys are opting out. Um, how much worse could that problem get around the SEC and maybe just in general in college football? And could it even get to the point where you guys see a, a team shutting down for the rest of the season just because they don't have the personnel they need to be competitive in one of these last two games? I'll start with you, Matt. I don't think it'll reach that point where a team will have to shut down, but I, I think this is a trend that's going to continue moving forward even when we're out of the, this crazy COVID year, similar to how – the, the Christian McCaffrey's of the world started a trend in terms of players opting out for, for bowl games. So obviously this season specifically, we continue to see players opt out and just start early in terms of their prep for the draft. Even Kelvin Joseph, the, the corner at Kentucky, who's currently leading the, the SEC in, in interceptions. But we, with LSU, the, the funny part with them is, we, which has been the, the big issue for them throughout the course of the, the, the season or most of the season. It's been the, the defense, Bo Pelini's defense. And the, the interesting part of these last couple of games is the defense has actually gotten better to where a, against Texas A&M only allowed 13 points on defense. They've gotten better on that side of the ball. And who knows, maybe, maybe the year combining the, the improvement from a defensive standpoint uh, with, with what they were doing early in the year offensively. Maybe it would be going differently if Miles Brennan hadn't have gotten hurt, but the, the offense just is not at a good point right now. So the freshman quarterback who, who started this past game ended up getting pulled in T.J. Finley. He was all of 9 of 25 with a couple interceptions, including a pick six against AM. and just not playing great to the point that 
it, it looks like they may go a different direction this week at quarterback with another true freshman, Max Johnson. But it isn't even just the, the quarterback position, the running game-wise. And granted, it was against a, a very good A&M defense, but the, their top running back against A&M had all of 18 yards on 11 carries. They're just not at a good point offensively, and it's part of the reason that I, I just don't see this game against Alabama being competitive, even factoring in that they have taken a step forward defensively and playing better on that side of the ball compared to how they were playing early in the year. John, what do you think about that as a future dynamic that carries over after 2020 that that we could potentially see guys who have high draft potential maybe deciding once they get to you know mid-November in a normal year, hey, maybe maybe I don't need to maybe I don't need to hang around and be a part of a team that that doesn't seem as into this as I am, uh, and I could instead just go off and start getting ready for the draft. Yeah, I certainly think it's something to, that bears watching going forward. You know, I think with this year, the one thing that I'm interested in, um, you know, I think I, I mentioned it on one of the previous shows, but, you know, I talked to some different people around the SEC who basically said, you know, we have to drag some of these teams across the finish line we're going to. And so I think that we'll get across the finish line. But the question I have is that, whether you might see some teams turn down bowl invites because they just don't have enough players who want to play in that bowl. Um, I think that's one of the challenges that is, is on the horizon. You know, you head into 2021 um, and I think it's always going to be a concern, you know, in terms of making sure your guys are bought in uh, during a challenging year. I think that's always going to be a thing. I do think this year is unique in that because there's additional potential health concerns associated with it, it makes it much easier for guys to make that decision to opt out. Uh, I think in a normal year, there's a lot more stigma that comes with it. Uh, and I think there'd be some concerns and I'm sure Zan's going to hit on this better than I can, but some concerns about how it might impact their draft stock if they just quit in the middle of a season. Um, I think that you, know, you might get some of the dreaded character concerns or something like that. So I think that will stem it from becoming a massive thing, but certainly I wouldn't be shocked if next year a couple of players decide at some point during the season to opt out uh, because they just you know feel like the team's not doing anything and they can just better prepare for the draft on their own. Yeah, definitely a a strange time in college football, but but I do wonder what the overall impact will be on the future from this season. I think there will be at least some elements of this season that we look back on and say, you know, it was probably going to happen eventually anyway, and 2020 just sort of sped up the process when it came to this one specific element of the sport. Well, guys, I'm... I think I think we'll wrap it up here for this week. There's definitely going to be, um, regardless of how competitive this weekend's games are, I think there's still a lot of interesting storylines that need to play out. As we've mentioned, the Heisman race today, I think it's starting to get really compelling. We're not hearing a ton of chatter about it yet, but I think I think it could be something that Alabama fans in particular get very invested into. Uh, you know, we've got an upcoming SEC championship game that I honestly I think is going to be very interesting right now. I'm very curious to see how that one plays out. So we'll have plenty to talk about uh, for the remaining. I mean, look, we've still got three weeks of season left. I know it doesn't feel like we should because we just had rivalry week, but we're, we're really sort of in the thick of what would normally be a November for college football season. But here we are in, in December talking about it. So Thanks for, uh, thanks for everybody for joining us on First Down South again, and you guys have a great week.